Well, good morning. My name is Tom Nelson. Welcome to our uh, Leewood campus. And uh, this morning, uh, if you've been a part of our journey through 1 Corinthians, you know that uh, we are exploring one of Paul's uh, letters written in the middle of the first century. It's really quite an extraordinary letter. And uh, up to this point, uh, again, if you've been with us or you're newer today, uh, we've been exploring what the Apostle Paul says. And uh, the first five chapters, basically what Paul has said is, uh, y'all, maybe he didn't say y'all, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, he said, y'all, it's uh, you know, time you wise up. Uh, because if you don't wise up, you won't grow up. So the first five chapters, Paul has focused on our spiritual formation, particularly has addressed the common thread of spiritual pride, which is a challenge for all of us. Now, as we enter into chapter six, um, Paul changes subjects, and that is on human sexuality. So if you're newer to Christ's community or visiting this morning, let me just say a couple things. Uh, First of all, uh, human sexuality is not a soapbox we're on. Uh, It's where the biblical text takes us. And uh, whether our sermon is on pride or money or power or sexuality or whatever it is, I think it's important for you to capture our hearts because our stewardship as pastors and teachers, it's not that we want something from you, it's what we want for you. That's what drives our heart. Let me also say that uh, this subject uh, elicits a lot of feelings, a lot of thoughts in each one of our lives. All of us here this morning experience sexual brokenness, and uh, many of us have had significant regrets in our past, hurtful wounds. We've had real struggles, fears, longings, disappointments in the past and the present. So I know that sexuality is a difficult topic for all of us to talk about. But at Christ Community, we talk about difficult topics. Why? First, it's because we take the Bible, the 66 books of canonical scripture, very seriously. We believe this book is inspired by God. And it is the highest authority for all of life. Now, even if you're here this morning and you don't share that belief, let me just suggest to you that there is extraordinary wisdom in this book about human flourishing. But the second reason we address topics that are so difficult is we teach through the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. Christ's community across our campuses, our teaching team is deeply committed to respect the literary integrity and structure of the biblical writers. We don't pick and choose what we like or don't like or what we deem as important or unimportant. We are absolutely committed in the original languages to teach the best of our ability of what the original authors intended to say, not what we think they should say or our opinion of it. So while we read the Bible, this masterpiece of masterpieces, let's just also remind us, each one of us, the Bible reads us. You know what that means? That means that God loves us enough to not only comfort us, but to make us uncomfortable. And I have a hunch as we open God's word, and you heard this text this morning, maybe we're feeling just a little bit of both of those, right? So let's pray before I begin this morning's message. Let's pray. Our gracious and good Heavenly Father, you are the Lord of every square inch of the universe which you've created. You have need of nothing, Yet in your generous outpouring of love, you have created us in your image and you designed us and desire us to flourish. But yet, like Humpty Dumpty, we have taken a great fall and we all feel it. We all feel our brokenness and only you, Lord, can make us whole again. 
So Holy Spirit, be our teacher and guide us in your truth and grace. We pray in Jesus' beautiful and stunning and awesome name. Amen. Well, you know, we all like to be in control, don't we? I was reminded that this week. Uh, several of our staff uh, found our way uh, to Kearney, Nebraska. It's kind of a nice place, especially in the summer. Um, but the winter is not always fun. But uh, we rode in two vans up to Kearney, Nebraska, suffering for Jesus at a good conference, and uh, we encountered snow. Now, I wasn't driving. Patrick was driving. He's a very good driver. I was in the back, but I found myself <laughs> at times wanting to grab the wheel. You ever been there? I mean, it's not because Patrick's a bad driver, quite the contrary. It's not about his competency. It's about my need to be in control. See, we all like to be in control. And if we wonder at your house, who holds on to that TV remote? Or if you're in a family vacation, some of the most tense times <laughs> is who decides where you're going to eat and what restaurant you're going to stop? I mean, we had more fights as a family over that. We all love to be in control. You know, what we eat, our jobs, our schedules, our sleep. But if there's anything in the world that we have control over, it's not our jobs, it's not our diet, it's not our schedule, it's not our finances, or even our closest friends. If there's anything we have control over, it's this, our bodies, right? So, what do you own if not your body? Yet what the Apostle Paul tells us this morning in our text is rather stunning. Paul will say, you don't belong to you. Now, in our culture where there is so much illusion of autonomy and self-determination, I want to suggest to you that many of you are thinking, wow, that seems implausible. What planet are you on? But I want you to know, wherever you are in your spiritual life and journey this morning, that the Christian sexual ethic is not just merely about what we do or don't do, but it's all about, at its foundational level, who we are and who we belong to. When Paul addresses the topic of sex, I mean, he doesn't grimace, he doesn't get red, I don't think, he doesn't get embarrassed, but he wants us just to grasp that it's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts, but it is much more about that we are more than we often realize. Paul will say in the text this morning, we are more than our desires, we are more than individuals, and we are more than animals. So if you have your Bible open, I'd like you to turn to a very exciting text, which you've heard read, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verses 12 to 20, Paul does something amazing, and this is going to be foundational for the next, uh, next week's message and the following message, so we need to grab onto this. He's going to give us three bedrock truths that frame a Christian sexual ethic. And these are the three. We are more than our desires, we are more than individuals, and we are more than what we see. So the text follows these three bedrock principles of a Christian sexual ethic. First, we are much more than our desires. Look at verses 12 through 14. Let me read this again and listen carefully. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, literally the word means mastered or enslaved, by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will eliminate or 
destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, that means Jesus' physical body, and will also raise our physical body up in his power. That's the idea. Now, let's remember when Paul was with the Corinthians, he was with them a year and a half. And the Apostle Paul establishes young believers in their faith. He preached the gospel that spoke into every corner of human existence, every nook and cranny. And let's not forget that Corinth was an amazing place. Corinth was known as a sailor's delight in some of the original language, a sailor's town. And so at Corinth, there was a sexuality, and there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, everything goes in Corinth. To be a Corinthian was known to be immoral, that very language in the first century. So they were immersed in a culture where sexual promiscuity and prostitution was everywhere. But notice in verse 12, Paul repeats this phrase. This phrase is, all things are lawful for me. Now, what he is doing, we know he's had reports from the church that they're really messed up. So he's taking language he used with them that they disabused or perverted, and he challenges them on the abuse of his teaching. Teachers are good at that, right? You say something, and people take it another way, and it's like, don't do that. That's not what I meant. And so what's happening here is that the Corinthian believers had perverted Paul's teaching on Christian ethics and liberty and freedom to include liberty to visit prostitutes and to have sexual relationships outside the covenant of marriage. So Paul feels, rightly so, compelled to address this error in thought and behavior. But notice where Paul, Paul was trained in logic. He was a brilliant logician, not only a theologian. And notice how the text is built around Paul's challenge of a logical category mistake in human thinking. If we don't understand this, we don't understand the text. What they were doing is they were using logic to pervert his teaching in order to justify sex outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Paul uses the word in Greek, the pornea, and we get the word pornography in English from it. Pornea means any sexual relationship outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the meaning of this word that's uh, translated immorality here. So what is this logical category mistake? He brings theology and logic together, and the logical category mistake is that sexual desire, they're saying, (laughs) is the same thing as an appetite for food, same thing. What is happening in Corinth is they're saying, you know, know, sex and uh, dinner, you know, having it is really the same thing. That's what they're saying. Both are essential biological necessities in life. But Paul is going to challenge them on that assumption. They are not the same. Now, let me just bring it home here. We, we know this, don't we, intuitively, whether we agree or not. Let me just say, if you're married uh, and uh, you're uh, enjoying dinner with your spouse and eating, and someone walks into your house, you might be a little bit irritated but you wouldn't feel embarrassed or like, what are you doing here? You wouldn't, you know, right? But let's say you and your spouse are enjoying physical sexual intimacy and someone walks in the house. How do you respond? <laughs> Not the same way, right? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, come on. 
And C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Oxford uh, literary uh, critic of the medieval ages, he was a brilliant writer and Christian in many ways, but he says this, it's so really good. He says, imagine a world where people pay money to watch someone eat a steak, where people are fixated on magazine pictures of food. Now, some of us foodies might get close to that. And Lewis's point is, <laughs> if we landed on such a planet, we'd think the appetites of these aliens were strangely deranged, wouldn't we? Yet this is how many people approach sex today. And we're often told, whether it's the recently released erotic movie like Shades of Grey, just in case you know, I'm not going to that movie. Just want to make sure you know. Or a television sitcom that sex is just a physical appetite we have. All of us have it. We need to satisfy it. Sigmund Freud, the psychiatrist, his ghost is still very present. In our culture, you know, Freud made the case in his atheism. He hated Judeo-Christian ethics. Truly, if you study his life, and he viewed it as the problem of all humanity. That repressing your sexual desire, desires messed you up big time. And sexual abstinence of any kind was the most awful, dreadful thing. Freud's influence still reigns. An example recently, Barbara Lee, I don't know her, I'm sure she's an intelligent woman, a compassionate woman perhaps, a congresswoman, congresswoman from California, spoke out about sex education in the schools. And this is what she said. Listen to the last phrase. She says, an abstinence until marriage program is not only irresponsible, here's what she says, it is really inhumane. Hmm. Now, Paul, that's what the Corinthians are saying. Paul strongly challenges this kind of thinking and he's, that, that at the end of the day, sex is just a mere physical act. Notice verses 13 and 14. Paul makes the point that we are much more than our physical desires, that our physical bodies are not merely physical appetites with this short shelf life, but rather notice they have an eternal destiny. Our physical bodies are grand, and they're going someplace grand. Do not miss that in his text. Eugene Peterson, uh, such an amazing uh, paraphraser of the Bible and the message. And, and here he just, he just hits it out of the park, as he often does. He says in this text, he says, there is more to sex, listen carefully, than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as a physical fact. And Paul is saying when we reduce human sexuality to mere physical appetites, to a mere one-dimensional reality, we inevitably reduce and diminish human value. We trash what God treasures. We make a masterpiece into the mundane. He's saying to the Corinthians, you can just hear his rhetoric. Do you not know? Three times he says that in a sort of literary incredulity. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know who you are? In whose image you have been made and created? How glorious your physical body is, that it was created to worship God, not to be worshipped, but to worship God. So Paul is keep saying, stop treating as trash what you should treasure. Now imagine with me, uh, it's taken me a long time. Uh, I have to admit I'm not really into technology at the level I'm supposed to be, right? But my phone died a few months ago, and I have this cool iPhone now, right? Quite an amazing thing. I uh, wish I had Apple stock, but that's another story. <laughs> 
Um, but imagine this. You know, I, I'm getting used to using this little sucker. Um, <laughs> imagine that I, you know, <clears throat> turn this thing on and slide this up and I push this little button called flashlight, right? Pretty cool. And so I just got this $700 phone to find my way around at night around the bedroom. <laughs> I mean, this is a great flashlight, isn't it? I mean, it works. What if I didn't use this phone for anything else? <laughs> it's a flashlight, $700 flashlight. <laughs> I don't text, I don't tweet, I don't look at a website. I don't, you know, have Siri give me directions when I'm lost. Because this phone is multidimensional. It's designed for so much more. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, sex is so much more than just a stinking little flashlight. You were designed with so much more in mind. Our sexuality is something that is such a multidimensional treasure. And the Apostle Paul says, because if it's a treasure, we need to use self-control in how we use it. See, we are more than our desires. So when is the, let me ask, when is the last time you said no to a physical bodily desire? I mean, we do this, right? Thank God we do this in terms of what we think we're going to say and what we say, right? Thank God we have control over our tongues, some more than others. Right? We don't have to say everything we think, right? Praise God for that. Believe me, my message will probably go on two hours today. So just want you to know. And yet somehow we're blindsided on physical realities of our bodily appetites or desires. We don't have to act on every physical desire or appetite we have, nor should we. Dallas Willard, who uh, spoke so powerfully, professor of philosophy at USC and Christian, about the spiritual disciplines of learning self-control. One thing he said that was just absolutely amazing in a conversation... He said, one of the things you teach your congregation how to have self-control is just say, start with this, right? It says, practice when you have an itch. Oh, we're going to itch right now, right? Practice not scratching your itch. Learn self-control at the basic level. Every itch you have or I have does not need to be immediately satisfied. That's the point. That's what Paul is saying. Maybe sex is not your biggest struggle right now. Maybe the greatest physical temptation of your body is, is, is food, overeating, <laughs> or, or over shopping, or not getting enough sleep, or not exercising. And the question Paul is saying is, is your body your master or your servant? Now, don't miss this. This is foundational to the messages that are coming. We have been given dominion over our bodies, but we are not owners of our bodies. We are stewards of everything, and we talk about stewardship here, and we should, but at the most fundamental level, the most intense, important stewardship of our existence is our physical stewardship of our bodies. We may have many desires, but we are much more than our desires. That's where Paul goes. Now, the second truth emerges in verses 15 through 17, that is, we are more than just ourselves. Paul says, do you not know, hear, hear the rhetoric again, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And he uses the strongest negation in the original language possible. It's a unique construction in the Greek text. 
It's like unthinkable. Or do you not know that he was joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he was joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now notice with me how Paul continues to arrange his thoughts around do you not know? And his point is, you should know this. I taught you this. I'm a rabbi. We went through the story in Torah when I was with you. We described this reality in Genesis 2. So he says, don't forget, Genesis 2.24, the two will become one flesh. You should know this. We talked about this when I was there. For a rabbi Paul, Apostle Paul, not to cover that storyline is unimaginable in establishing their faith. Paul didn't just start with the cross. He started with creation. Do not forget that. So he's saying, you should know this. We talked about this. He says, becoming one flesh is not merely an intimate physical connection between two people. Becoming one flesh is becoming a new person, a new human unit, body, soul, mind, and spirit. That's what Genesis teaches. This is why Paul says so strongly, that sex with a prostitute is out of the question. And if we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we see that our individuality is set in the context of community. We are more than just ourselves. Sex is more than just a private act, and yet we are taught that over and over again in our culture. That sex between two consenting adults is really a private matter, and it's nobody else's business. We are taught that over and over again. But I want to challenge that respectfully because I believe it's flawed. Is sex strictly a private matter? Wendell Berry, a fine poet and wonderful social commentator, says this, sex is not, nor can it be any individual's own business, nor is it merely the private concern of any couple. Sex, like any other necessary, precious, and volatile power that is commonly held, he goes, is everyone's business. Now, some of you are saying, come on, right? Well, let me just challenge some thoughts for you to at least think about, okay? I mean, sex is indeed private, but it's more than that. First, the burden of children without sufficient parental support in our entire nation is at a crisis level. Dr. P.J. Hill, who is a friend of mine, who is an economic historian, has said and done a lot of empirical research, you know, the greatest poverty cause in the United States is births out of wedlock. Secondly, children, we know this from research, who live in non-stable family environments are detrimentally affected not only when they're children, but throughout their entire lives. And some of you have experienced that in your family of origin. And it shadows you for the rest of your life. Third, the high number the unconscionable high number of elective abortions is so deeply tied to sexual promiscuity and irresponsibility. And not only does that have a profound impact on the sanctity of these precious old children, but all of society. Is sex just a private matter? And what do you and I do in our private lives shapes our public character? This idea of private public and the sum compartmentalized separation of the human experience is absolutely bogus. Our private lives speak powerfully into our public life and character and virtue. 
People use sex merely for their own individual recreation and fulfillment. It weakens everyone's ability to live for others in the common good and to sacrifice for others. We commodify people, don't we? We think of them as a means to satisfy our own passing selfish pleasures. So I have to talk about perhaps one of the most destructive realities of our day, and that is pornography. Men, when we look at porn, we are exploiting women. The multi-billion dollar porn industry is massive, and it is massively destructive. The widespread use of pornography has had such a damaging impact on marriages and relationships and how women see themselves. Women and men, to some degree, can never live up the phantom unrealities that pornography distorts in people's minds and hearts. And some of you have dealt with that in your family or your marriage and know how ugly you feel or how insecure you feel with your partner because of that. Beauty and desirability is because God has made you in his image. Not because you have to live to some standard. It is unreachable in beauty and in sexual fulfillment. It's a trap. It's a travesty. It's a mirage. And it's destructive. So if you are a man or woman caught up in pornography, don't minimize it. Don't trivialize it or rationalize the problem. One of the biggest lies we believe is that pornography is not that big of a deal. It is a big of a deal. And it increasingly gets bigger and bigger in your life, and it profoundly enslaves you. All of us need a safe community to come clean and to help each other out of this bondage, to allow the light of truth to illuminate the darkness we are in. So if you are caught up in that, get help. Talk to one of our pastors or a professional counselor. Sex is not merely a private matter. We are more than our desires, dear friends, and we are more than just ourselves. And the third truth that Paul says is that we are much more than what we see in the mirror. Look at verses 18 through 20. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, do you hear that refrain? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul urges in the strongest Greek imperative the Corinthians that they are to flee sexual practice outside of marriage. And he makes the case, you'll notice how he makes it, that our physical bodies are more than piles of atoms. They are places of worship. It's interesting, the Corinthians, and I have, you know, been to Corinth, um, even after thousands of years, if you look at ancient Corinth, up on the hill is the Acro-Corinth. It's the temple of Aphrodite. We still have some pillars from that. Throughout history, Corinth was known for one of the grandest temples of Aphrodite devoted to pleasure. There were, at certain periods of time, in the history of Corinth, thousands of prostitutes where people worshipped at that temple. So everybody who is hearing Paul talk about, they knew what a temple was. So Paul changes their paradigm of what a temple of worship is. He says, it's not the temple of Aphrodite, it's the temple of your own physical body. That's where God 
the Spirit dwells within you. And he uses a Greek word, not of the temple complex, not of the big complex, but the very inner sanctum of a temple, the most holy place. So if you put a Jewish idea on it, it is where the Shekinah glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Where God's manifest presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. He says, your body, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit, your body is the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. Wow. You know, places devoted to worship of God are often awe-inspiring. Have you noticed that? There's a reason for that. I remember when our family took a vacation to England. Uh, one of the funnest vacations we ever had. And uh, actually, we followed Wilbur, Wilbur For- or, uh, William Wilberforce's life, but we, we uh, certainly ended up in London. And Christopher Wren is one of the most amazing architects of human history. In crafting St. Paul's Cathedral, if you've ever been there, you walk into this massive cathedral and you just, you cannot help but have your jaw drop. There is an awe of transcendence when you walk into that space devoted to the glory of God. Isn't it interesting? It's called St. Paul's. I think Christopher Wren team understood Paul's text of temple, don't you? But I remember looking up in that massive place and just being in awe of this place devoted to worship. Yet Paul is saying there is no more awe-inspiring sacred space in all the universe than your physical body and mine. Both in the present, in its brokenness, and its future destiny. Physical bodies matter. And let's not forget that future reality awaits all those who are in Christ is a bodily reality. It's not just a bodiless playing a harp on heaven. No wonder David, who himself faced deep sexual sin, I don't know when he wrote Psalm 139, but I'm thinking it's perhaps afterwards, but I don't know that for sure. But he says what? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the Hebrew text uses the most intensification of language, pala, pala. There's nothing like us as the crown of creation because God made us in his image. So we are much more than we realize, friends. We are more than our desires, more than just ourselves, and we are more than what we see with our eyes. So let me raise some questions of reflection this morning on this text. First, do you really know who you are? Do you know how valuable and precious you are? God designed sex as a good thing. It is his idea. And somehow it gloriously reflects the Trinitarian image of unity and love and intimacy and community. He designed it as a pleasurable thing, as a unifying thing between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And yet we are dismissing that as a culture. I find it interesting that even people who are not Christians, who have different worldviews, describe the, the damage of the cohabiting effect. Have you noticed that in the literature? It's uh, years and years since the 60s and 70s, what I call the try-it-before-you-buy-it mindset. Move in before you're married. See if this works. New York Times a while ago made the point this. New York Times. That those who cohabit before marriage 
tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than couples who do not. Cohabitation is not the way to go. God didn't design it that way, and the deepest longings of our heart and the security we long for is never satisfied that way. Yet we keep hearing that myth. The try it before you buy it mindset. See, sex reflects the intimacy, community, and joy of our Trinitarian God. And if we know the rest of the story, friends, it is a foretaste, it is an appetizer of the future reality we will have with God. Not in a marriage way. We know that Jesus says that. But it points us to what the deepest longings of our heart will one day be satisfied in an intimacy we can never imagine where sin is not present. It is because sex is such a treasure. We must not trash it. God's design and desire for human sexuality is crystal clear in the Bible. Crystal clear. That we would experience sex with all its multiple dimensions in the boundary of marriage between a man and a woman or live fulfilled lives of singleness and celibacy. That is God's design. And the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are compellingly clear. Secondly, are you fleeing Sexual temptation. We live in a very sexualized culture. (laughs) Welcome, Corinth. Just like the Corinthian Christians did in the first century. And we don't have to go looking for sexual temptation. It comes to us on our cell phone, our computer screen. And it came to the Corinthians every time they walked onto the market. It comes to us in a romance novel. At a hotel on a business trip. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, was no stranger to sexual temptation, let me tell you. He says, you can't keep the birds from flying around your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. See, the Bible teaches, and really here, this text, when it comes to sexual temptation, there's two of other temptations, but particular sexual tem- temptation, because there's such intensity with it, that there's really only one way of escape. Now, <laughs> I don't think I've ever said this before in a message. But if you want to flee temptation, don't pray about it. Don't rationalize it. Don't think about it. Flee from it. It's not praying. It's not rationalizing. It's learning to immediately flee at the early point of temptation. That's as important for me when I was 18 or when I'm in my mid-50s. One of the great stories of history, one of the great Christian classics you should read is Confessions, if you haven't, by St. Augustine. St. Augustine, 5th century bishop of Hippo, one of his greatest struggles in life was sex before he became a bishop. I mean, it was so intense, he describes the bondage of, of sexual desire, and this is what he writes. He says, so I lived for a long while, trembling misery, For I was afraid of giving up my sin as much as I feared death. And if you're locked into sexual temptation or addiction or whatever it is, you know that's exactly what you feel. 
He says, even though it was because of my evil that I was wasting away to death, I knew that what held me was such a small thing. And yet I turned and twisted as one, listen, held in a chain. As my, if my own agonizing might finally break it somehow. Fifth century A.D. A Christian man. and leader in the church, and God used him amazing. But what a sordid past he had before he came to Christ. Confession talks about the struggle of who is master over his body. Amazing. Paul is saying in order not to fall, you have to flee. And if you linger, or if I linger, the battle, the temptation, particularly sexual temptation, and its intense gravitational pull is lost. I remember as a teenager... This is not what I recommend, but I'm going to be transparent. I did this. I love dirt bikes. And uh, when I was 14, 15, I lived in a rural area, and we had all these cool dirt bikes that were all hopped up. If you're, if you're into dirt bikes, my buddies, we would uh, dig dirt with our, our dirt bikes. And every now and then, we'd play chicken. I, won't, I'm not, I never told my mom about this. I'm very sad. Don't do this. But I remember lining up on the opposite of the field with our dirt bikes. We thought we were cool, and we'd drive toward each other, right? And then whoever was the toughest guy in the block would stay, and the other guy would turn. We never crashed, thankfully. What a stupid thing to do. <laughs> and some of us are playing chicken with sex right now, just like that, with sexual temptation. And maybe texting with your boyfriend or girlfriend or lingering over lunch with a work colleague of the opposite sex. You're getting as close as you can to it. You think you can swerve from it. But it's only a matter of time till you crash. See, it's not just fleeing from temptation, it's also running to Jesus. Are you running to Jesus? The writer of Hebrews says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. That we are not only to flee temptation, but to pursue apprenticeship with Jesus and the holiness and the life Jesus gives you. It's not just fleeing from, it's running too. And Paul says, as he ends this text, keep your eyes on Jesus and the cross life of sacrifice he calls you to, for you will find life in sacrifice. Paul says in chapter 6, you are not your own, right? He ends, so you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. What is the price? Peter says, our salvation is a grace gift, but it ain't cheap. And Peter reminds us that we are not redeemed with perishable things as silver and gold, but with precious, the very precious blood of Christ. This is the good news of the gospel for all of us, isn't it? It's available to each one of us when we in repentance and faith put our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now remember this, some of you are really wrestling with this message. There is not a mistake so severe, a past so sexually bad that God cannot redeem you. The gospel is that we become a new creature in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, they become a new creature, Paul says. The old has passed, the new has come. God is in the business of rebuilding broken lives. God's grace is there for you in repentance and faith and to give you a new life to live into God's design. The hymn writer sums it up beautifully, doesn't he? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Do you long to be whole? 
Paul says this. You don't belong to you. You belong to God. So glorify God in your body, in your sexuality, in all that you say and do. That's the end of my message, but I have another thought. Because as I was doing this message, I've given messages on sex before. But I realized, you know, I've been married 32 years now. And I can say something now that I couldn't have said 15 years ago. I remember as a boy looking at the biblical sexual ethic thinking that's impossible. (laughs) That's so restrictive, so difficult. And as a teenager, I struggled with temptation. And throughout my life, I have struggled with the sexual brokenness of my own impure thoughts and attitudes. But let me say after 32 years being married to what I think, who I think is the most wonderful woman in the world, I can look back at my life and say, God's plan is the best. There's nothing like it. So as a broken human being, as a pastor, as a pastor who cares for you and cares for the common good of all image bearers of God, I so want what is best for you. And sex is a precious gift from God. Let's not trash what should be the amazing treasure it is. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, take just a moment. And let's quiet our hearts before God. There's no place for stone throwing of self-righteousness, but individual reflection. Lord Jesus, what are you saying to me? What do you want to address? Where do you want to bring me comfort and make me uncomfortable? Writer John tells of Jesus, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. John writes, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, speak to us. Spirit of living God, transform us.